Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world-leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self-doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part, it's completely free, a token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, or simply visit the SportMind Hub by Googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hey ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I am super excited to share this next episode on the Squash Mind podcast series with you. I've got Alistair McCaw on the show. I have been following Alistair for many years. He is one of the most inspirational people you'll come across. I think you'll find this conversation so illuminating, so empowering, so engaging. He has done pretty much everything in the sporting world. His career has been phenomenal. He's the author of four best-selling books. He is a keynote speaker. He had a massive career in personal training. He's a mindset coach. He's completed 29 marathons. He's, he's going to be doing his 30th one really soon. Um, and he's also taken part in five world championships in duathlon. Just a massively wide-ranging, dedicated, passionate individual. A lot of people I work with, a lot of the juniors have come across him and his Books are motivational, inspiring. They really get into habits and habit forming and su- sustain success. His brand, Champion Minded, and, and his podcast series as well is massively listened to. And like I said, I, I feel m- so honored and so motivated to be able to speak to someone like Alistair McCaw. He's one of these guys that, you know, I reached out to him. We, we had a few mutual friends in the squash world we, we've never met before. But you know what? Contacting him on social media, within a day he replied. And within five days, we were sitting down recording this podcast. So massive kudos to the guy. It just shows his his passion for coaching, just how good of a person he is. In the podcast, he talks about gratitude and thoughtfulness for other people. And there's a really great section where he opens up about some of his struggles and some of his battles. And I'm really appreciative that that he felt comfortable enough to talk about them and to open up and expand. There was quite a few questions being sent in by some of the players I work with that heard I was having a chat with them and they were super keen and excited to send some questions. So thanks for those. They were really good. And 
we cover such a wide range of, of topics and themes and talk about culture of training, a lot of the stuff that I subscribe to, he was able to reinforce in his coaching methods. And yeah, I, I can really put him down as one of the people that has influenced my coaching career and the way I look at working with athletes and the way I look at myself, the way I'm trying to become better within what I do in regard to the technical aspects, but in regard to the the way I approach the minds and the mindset of athletes and working on that. We talk about some of the players he's worked with. He's been right at the top end with some of the tennis players. Kevin Anderson, South African player who's reached two Grand Slam finals. He's coached a few world number ones. Uh, worked with Svetlana Kuznetsova. I think I've said that all right. Uh, Russian number two in the world player. You know, so he's really been there for many years. I think over 25 years worth of coaching knowledge and we distill it all in this podcast and you can hopefully tell from the tone and excitement from my voice that it, it was so inspiring. I came away from it learning so much myself, taking away a lot of lessons that I'm going to apply and work on myself and it's the sign of, of, of greatness. He was actually curious about some of the stuff I was doing and some of the stuff I've been working on and looking at, you know, it, it being open-minded to learn from anyone is, is a real skill and a real asset to have. And I hope you enjoy this broad, interesting, motivating, wide-ranging conversation with Alistair McCall. I'm really excited and honored to have Alistair McCaw joining me from Florida as my guest on the Squash Mind podcast series. Alistair, how's it going? Good, thank you. Good to be here, Jesse. Cool, man. Um, so listen, I followed you for quite a few years. Uh, massive fan of your work. A lot of the players I work with and coach refer to your work and some of the quotes and, and, and the books you've written. But looking back at some of the stuff you've done, you, you've worn so many different hats in your career, you know, including being best-selling author of four books, keynote speaker, personal trainer, mindset coach. You've completed 29 marathons, also took part in five world championships in duathlon. But I'd like to go back a little to the start and possibly discuss your wide ranging and varied background as a junior athlete and how this maybe molded your adult self. Yeah, well, um, obviously, you know, I was brought up in South Africa. I was actually born in Northern Ireland. Um, we lived there until I was six and then we, we moved across to Johannesburg in the early 80s. Um, obviously, I was young. I, I didn't know much. Um, but definitely one of the, the advantages that we had was our schooling system, obviously, you know, a lot of sports, you would know that as well. We played a lot of sports in school. There was a high emphasis in sports. Um, I wasn't great academically, uh, <laughs> but however, I loved sports. Uh, little did I know that it would become a career one day because back in the 80s, if you were to say you were going into a sports career, then they would laugh at you because back then sports was more entertainment and fun. It wasn't a business as such. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, I was very, very blessed that, you know, I was brought up in, in a beautiful country where there was a lot of emphasis on sports. Obviously, the weather's great, which helps. And, you know, sometimes we'd end up playing five, six, seven sports <laughs> in a week. Uh, you know, you'd play rugby, cricket, soccer, tennis, track and field, all these things. And, you know, it was just a fantastic um, uh, way to be brought up. And, and, of course, you'd get home and you'd play in the garden and, and you know, a game <laughs> of cricket or whatever. So, you know, I was uh, submerged in already that, that environment of just lots of sports and lots of outdoor activities. And, you know, it's become obviously a big part of my life today. But um, I think, you know, my first love was, was tennis when I was maybe eight, nine. Um, you know, there was a club that was near us, Velta Frieden Park. And mm. I just was very uh, passionate about tennis and I would hit against the wall. And 
I would sneak under the fence because the, the, the gates would be locked and we couldn't afford <laughs> membership fees and so on. So I would, I would make holes in the fence and, and I would look for tennis balls in the field and, you know, all that type of stuff. And I had an old racket, but, you know, um, that's where it all started. I, I can remember, obviously, we couldn't afford coaching. So I'd remember sitting alongside the tennis court, listening to other coaches, working with other players, and I'd steal Amazing. Their, their information. Wow. Said, yeah, this is when I was 9, 10, 11. And I'd go practice that, you know, down on the court, you know, against the wall, for example. So if the, if the coach was talking about a, you know, div, you know, a C shape on your forehand, which is like yeah. a, a tennis type of uh, cue, I would go practice that down, you know, down at the other court. Um, you know, one thing led to another, started playing tournaments, won my senior club championships at 13, um, played ranking tournaments, got close to the top 10 in my age group, but it got to a stage where it was just too expensive. And, and you know, I was outside that type of top 10, top five bracket where there was sponsorship available or support available. And, and we just couldn't sustain it anymore. So from there, you know, listen, I, from, a, from a young age, I, I wanted to be a champion in something. I knew that I wanted to be a champion in sports. First of all, the dream was tennis. And then, you know, I took up running um, because running is a big part in South African schools as well. I was in a, in a very strong school in Rampark, which, um, which had a very strong athletics uh, uh, history. We won the championship 10 times in a oh, row, wow. the, 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 uh, the, the, the region. Yeah. And um, a lot of good runners. And that's where I de developed my running skills. And then obviously I took up cycling and, you know, went into duathlon, competed in five world championships and made a, a good career of it. So that's where it all started. It started with very simple beginnings. It started with a lot of uh, self-driven. My parents never need, didn't need to push me to go train. Actually, they were the opposite. They felt I was doing too much. Right. And um, that's where it started for me. And, you know, it's become a, a massive part of my life. And it became a massive part of me writing the book Champion Minded because mm. Champion Minded is not necessarily about being the most talented or skilled. It's about what you can do with what you have and what you're willing to, how hard you're willing to work and the attitude you bring each day. And that's the, really the message I try and get through. So that, that, that gets me thinking so much in a coaching career. And my story might mirror yours very slightly, you know, again, very, very open um, schooling system, you know, sport from one o'clock every day. And, and I've had this discussion with a lot of coaches is going, how organically did we possibly learn our skills at that age, as opposed to possibly maybe the modern world now where everything is really formalized. Coaching seems very formalized now. And I don't know, like, I've heard stories of A.B. de Villiers, the South African cricketer, you know, using his hockey skills on the cricket pitch, for example, and the transferability of skills. So where do you stand in, in, in this idea of juniors learning organically the pickup game style as opposed to or in conjunction with the formalized coaching version of sport? Yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a big thing about multi-sports and that's what gave me a lot of, um, you know, improved my athleticism. In fact, it's something I've been very, very fortunate all my career is that I've never had a bad injury. And I really put that down to, to multi-sports as a kid that I developed my body in, in so many different ways. I played so many sports. Um, I mean, 20, I've done 29 marathons, maybe done over three, 400 races uh, in duathlon and never had, a, never had a sore knee or never had wow. a sore hip or anything. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. Know, I'm not, I'm not bragging, but I'm just saying I surprised myself. It's phenomenal. But um, I think it really, I, I really put that down to not being lucky, but, but being mm. all those sports in those first few years developed my whole body to, to, to be able to withstand all that. So, you know, parents that are not putting their kids into other sports, you know, they only want them to play one sport. You know, you're, you're 
it's a very high risk. Um, you know, I've seen more injuries in athletes that play single sports than, than play multiple sports. You know, on my podcast last week, I had um, Phil Neville, the Manchester yeah, United. Yeah, I love that podcast, by the way. That was a brilliant one. So and, you know, he played a very high, thank you. He played a very high level cricket. They played lots of sports. Mm-hmm. And he puts, he puts his uh, abilities down to playing other sports and especially cricket. Uh, with his reaction and his ability and so on and so forth. So, yeah, uh, I, I really believe that you should own, if you're going to specialize, so if you're, only, if you're going to specialize, then, you know, you really are at a very, very good level. You are like at the top of your age group or whatever, uh, but that should be around 14, maybe. I mean, Roger Federer still played other sports until he was 13, 14, and these are the best in the world, you know, and, you know, everybody's in a rush to get good. Everybody's in a rush to, yeah. you know, they think time is running out when you're 18, 19, which is absolute nonsense. I think your ability doesn't run out genetically. It runs out maybe financially. That's that's the biggest area that you've got right. to take care of is how, how long can you keep going with, you know, your financial side? That's the that's mm-hmm. the big area. Listen, for, for, for someone of your voice to say that just, just inspires me massively because it just reinforces a few things. And, and just harking back to your podcast was two massive things came out there. I love the story of um, he, he was playing cricket and, and it was Devin Malcolm, I believe, was, was one of the, the West Indian bowlers. Was running Otis, up. Gibson. Otis Gibson, sorry, close. Otis Gibson. Yeah. And yeah, by the who end of it. Um, who played, I think, for Western Province and, and, uh, and uh, Otis Gibson played for Western Province and uh, maybe... Borland, I think maybe okay. as well. He played back in the day when, when you know, when I was there. So yeah, that, it was yeah. funny that he brought that name up. It was brilliant, wasn't it? And and just a, a really good story from him and, and how he transferred his skills and how he learned. I think he talked about courage or maybe you mentioned the word courage in that thing and, and how he's able to deal with adversity later on in his life. And yeah, for me, it's it's a message I'm trying to get through to a lot of my players is going, you know what, sample, go sample those sports and and have a, have a range. And so, yes, you also alluded to uh, the Roger Federer story. I think you reposted it on your Twitter timeline and I think he was being interviewed at the US Open and yeah, he was very big on cycling, skateboarding, he had a squash background. And so, yeah, being able to understand that early specialization is not necessarily the, the be all and end all. And, and, and you're well aware of the Tiger Woods story. You know, everyone loves to have that as the poster boy going, Hey, at two years old. So what, what would you say to parents, the Roger slash Tiger story, you sound like you would reinforce the sampling type approach to sport? Yeah, you know, it's like like you just said there now, everybody likes to latch on to those, those stories of Andre Agassi or Tiger Woods. I mean, those are the one in the mm. the 50 million that, that, that comes through there. There's another massive amount that didn't make it that, that tried to go that route. And still to this day, you know, obviously living here in Florida where it's a, a big tennis and, and golf mecca, thousands and thousands of really, you know, really highly skilled and talented kids come through, come through here every year and... Mm. You know, maybe one out of a thousand of those at the very highest level will make it into the top hundred in, in, in tennis or or or, uh, or golf. And, and and we're talking about the highest of the highest level here. So never mind just the rest of the world. So, yeah, I mean, it's a very, very small margin. I mean, you know, a great a great goal for for kids around the world is obviously college. Um, you know, squash is obviously a, a college sport here as well. And if you're the Ivy League schools, I mean, what what better incentive to be able to to go to a, a great school and play squash um, and see where that goes, for example, uh, you know, but squash, uh, you, you know, is more than I do. It's a very small margin of people who actually can make a living from it. Um, I don't even think maybe 
players that are outside the top 20 or 30 are, are, are breaking even um, because it's like tennis as well. It's the same seven, eight players that are winning the big ones. And then the rest, are, you know, are, are playing for the smaller prize money, you know, but it's the same in most sports. It's those top five or eight that are, you know, in, in for the big, the big money mm -hmm. and only one gets that. So, you know, it's, it's very, very, it's very, very tough, but, you know, you know, at the age of 11, 12, 13, you know, it, it should be the, obviously if it's the dream of the kid that, you know, he or she wants to be a champion, like I did, for example, great, but the parents should be just, you know, providing as many opportunities as possible, playing different sports, encouraging them. Um, and, and it has to be, it has to be your journey. You know, mm -hmm. it has to be your journey. For me, it was, I mean, I never had to be pushed. I never had to be told to go practice. Um, you know, obviously I needed my parents for maybe a few rides and paying a few, um, mm -hmm tournament entries and so on obviously when i was very very young but then you know that that's about it no totally i agree that the, the idea of that supportive parent but not tipping into the the pushy parent side and you know yeah, i've got a six-year-old boy myself and constantly seeing the years of parents and how they've treated seven-year-olds to 13-year-olds and trying to learn from their mistakes in a way but i, I would like to talk about your own performance and competitive side uh, of, of yourself, your marathons, your duathlons, your world championships and those. Can you talk on the, the, the mindset of your performance and competitive self you have? Yeah, um, you know, it's funny. I was talking about this yesterday with somebody that, you know, I remember when I was when I was a junior and when I was, you know, maybe 19, 20, 21 uh, racing. I, I pushed myself so hard that I would, I know that after a race, I would, um, I wouldn't be able to see anybody or speak to anybody for a good few hours. I'd go to my bedroom and I'd, I'd close the curtains. I'd have a serious <laughs> migraine. Wow. Uh, I, I would be, I would be, I would be sick. I know it sounds very um, unhealthy, but I, I used to push myself so hard that I would be, be mentally, uh, physically sick afterwards. And I don't endorse that to anybody, but that's just how much I really could push my, my body. So I, I think at a very early um, age, I had a high pain threshold and I could put myself through a lot of stuff. And, you know, I was speaking to my mom about it as well a few weeks ago. And she said, you know, we really thought you were going to kill yourself because you were just so like hard on yourself. And I don't know where that came from. I mean, nobody asked me to do that. Nobody pushed me to do that. So from a year, young age, I could, I could really physically push myself very 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 hard and and in sports like endurance sports mm. you know cycling running um triathlon ironman it really comes down to not necessarily a massive amount of skill but just pain threshold how how long can you go and how hard can you hold on for and you know for me that was that was the case so you know um i only started running marathons after i'd finished my my professional career so i really wasn't at my peak I ran marathons just really to, to have goals and keep in shape, but it wasn't really a goal to, mm -hmm. to uh, compete in, okay. in, in, in marathons, so to say. And still, you know, still today, I'm doing one next month. There's no goal of time. It's right. just finish it, enjoy it. And so it's changed for me. You know, obviously, I can't push my body like I used to. Mm. And, and would that be the same in your the world championships of duathlon? Is that the same mindset you took into it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, like I said, I was, I was, I was ill after races um, wow. because I just pushed my body so much. You know, I remember, you know, I was sponsored by, by Polar uh, heart rate monitors, which I still wear today. And um, I'm not sponsored anymore, but I remember just, you know, my average heart rate would some be sometimes be like 195 per, wow. for a two and a half hour race. I mean, that's, wow. 
that's on 200 beats per, per minute for two and a half hours. I mean, I don't even know how my heart like withstood yeah. that. Um, sounds like yeah. sounds like you got to get um, old uh, David Epstein on the case from the sports gene because uh, yeah, his book talks about like certain athletes, whether it was um, the Jamaican sprinters or the Kenyan marathon runners, and look at the genetic makeup of that. And and you might have read the book, and it's it's really fascinating when he goes deep in it. So it's quite interesting to know how that transferred into your your coaching self because if you've got this you know high pain threshold and this not necessarily competitive edge, but that real ability to push, and then you put your coaching hat on now. Were you able to, obviously, some people might not have been able to rise to the standards that you set. Can you talk on that and how that process went for you? Yeah, I think in my early part of my coaching career, I, I, I found it hard to understand why, why you couldn't be self-driven or you couldn't push yourself as hard as I did. So I, I didn't quite understand that well enough. Obviously, I understand better today that, you know, not everybody is made up of the same um, you know, mindset and the same ability and so on and so forth, or hunger, for, for example. Yeah. But um, yeah, definitely in my coaching career, which is now well over 25 years and maybe maybe longer, I started coaching when I was 19, 20, which, which was personal training, of course, to supplement my, my sports. That's, that's how I started. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, that's, that's evolved with, with learning myself and learning others and learning how to get the best out of others. Not everybody's wired the same for example so i think mm -hmm. that's that's one of the lessons i try to pass down to younger coaches is that you know it's important to understand that not everybody thinks like you not everybody has the same values background um goals all, all these things and the more you're able to tap into their values goals ambitions uh culture all these things the the, the, the quicker you'll be able to help them progress i think that's mm -hmm. very important yeah, I, again, from my point of view, I, I was terrible. I was I was still playing pro at one point. I probably there was an overlap of three years of playing pro and coaching before I moved fully into coaching. And I, I'm embarrassed to say I, I put a lot of people off the game because I would turn up to say a school, and I'd been training for the last week, crazy. And I was like expecting these kids to go, right, come on. I, I had my benchmark here. And yeah, like definitely it's something I had to learn the hard way and going, you know what, let's become more athlete centered. Let's understand what these athletes want. And yeah, as younger coaches, you tend to do what you're used to doing, I suppose. And it's such a different skill. You've got to change that hat quite quickly, don't you? And yeah, so, so hearing you say that is, is <laughs> gives me a bit of solace, but also as a bit of embarrassment <laughs> looking back. I mean, no, absolutely. I mean, if I look back at my early coaching career, there's a lot of stuff where I just, you know, shake my head in disbelief that I actually did that. But that's all part of the journey. I mean, you know, it's, it's all part of making mistakes and realizing that you weren't always right and, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. But, you know, I think I think something that we need to, to remember is, is, you know, obviously coming from South Africa, we had, well, me anyway, I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm older than you, but, you know, our schooling system was very disciplined. It was, you know, almost military-like in some, in some ways. Yep. Uh, there was a lot of respect. You couldn't step out of line. Um, and those are things where, you know, not the rest of the world necessarily had and has. So we couldn't understand why others weren't as disciplined or, re or respectful or whatever, because, you know, they went to schools maybe here or in the UK or whatever, where they didn't have the same principles and core values as we did back in South Africa. And that's why, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful for the, the system that we were brought up in. Mm. Um, you know, I, yes, we were brought up during apartheid as well. well. I was, which obviously I don't agree with and was, wasn't a, a great, um, it was a, yeah, I mean, it's just something that's unfortunate. I mean, there's nothing we could do about that. But 
Um, definitely the schooling system, even today, because obviously I have nieces and nephews that are in, in school back in South Africa is still very, very good. Even the public schools are very, very good. They're still high discipline. They're still, um, you know, they, they teaching you the lessons of, of punctuality and, and respect and dress code and all these things that are so important for the rest of your life. Sure, that, that really segues me nicely into what I wanted to ask about your author self, because Champion Minded, I've got the book, love it, uh, highlighted loads of bits of it, you, you repost it on Twitter a lot. It sounds like some of your lessons from your schooling and your upbringing and, you know, even manners and respect and the culture started to lend itself into how you write and how you want to put across your message. Could you talk a little bit more on that and, and how you actually get into the mode of being the author you are and, you know, creating four really powerful books? Well, thank you. I mean, honestly, I've never finished a book thinking that's good. Um, <laughs> so the proof is always going to be once you put it out there and, and see what comes back. So, uh, but thank you very much for those compliments. I mean, I'm on my fifth book now and I'm, I'm, I'm nearing the end of the, some of the edits and I'm still thinking this is not good, but um, I think that's just the, I don't know, perfectionist or, you know, your, your own work, you're always, you'll always be critical of it. You'll never, you never just say, yeah, that's, that's really good. You know, it, you're, you're always on a, you know, on a, on a journey to do better and better and better. And that's, I actually write about that in my winning attitude and mindset is that that has been a struggle in my life of being okay with something that that's okay. Let it go. You know, um, it can be better. It can be better. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a trait of, of a, a champion is that it can always be better. You know, if you look at, you know, like for example, Lewis Hamilton and the Mercedes formula one team, uh, you know, Toto Wolf is their dealer principal, uh, their uh, principal um, CEO there. They've won seven championships in a row and he's constantly um, staying skeptical of how they can get better, how they can get better. He says, the minute we finish a race, I'm thinking about the next one of, of how we can win in, in two weeks time, for example. So that's the mindset of, of champions is that they're never really satisfied where they're at. And it's, it's not a healthy thing, to be honest. I mean, it's, it's something that I've struggled, struggled with and I write honestly and open about in, in my last book, for example. But, you know, Jesse, I never, I never knew I'd be an author. I never knew I'd be speaking and, and doing these things. You know, you evolve in life. In fact, in school, I failed English. Um, I couldn't write wow. to save my life. And, you know, it just shows you, like, you can you can put if, if you put your mind to anything you're able to do it you know everybody's mm -hmm. got a book in them that you do you know just start with one page um, yeah love it and and that reminds me of i think philip neville said that about alex ferguson didn't he so alex was as soon as they won a title on the bus on the way back they were planning their next next training session or next thing and i think i remember watching jürgen klopp as soon as liverpool won the champions league he went right up to alexander arnold put his arm around and was actually talking to him about tactics right after that this 20 year old had won the champions league and yeah and 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 i do resonate with that idea of it almost tipping into being a little bit unhealthy. You, you, it always feels like you might be chasing something, you know, it, it's it almost becomes an addiction in a way, possibly it's, it's a really fine balance. You need that. You need that spark, I believe as a, as a coach and an athlete, but when it's tipping into, uh, you know, damaging relationships or sacrificing different things in your life, that's where it can get a little bit tricky. Would you say? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, you know, that's why, why we have mental health issues in, in athletes and high performers and so on is because, where there's priorities, there's going to be imbalances. You know, you can't, I, I can't believe if you're uh, on the pursuit of excellence or trying to achieve something, you know, uh, extraordinary, you can't have balance in your life because most, most of your, 
energy and effort and time is going into that one area. Mm-hmm. So yes, um, relationships are tough. Mm-hmm. Other sides of your life are tough. You know, you're, especially if you're in a sport and you'd know this as well, you're physically tired most of the time, you're mentally tired. There's other pressures as well, financial. So there's a lot of things going on there that, that take away that, let's just say you weren't playing sport and you were just working a nine to five, you would come home and see your wife and your kids and you know, that's normal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, trying to balance all these things uh, in the pursuit of excellence of trying to, you know, be a top athlete uh, or, or whatever it may be. Yes, there's going to be imbalances. So um, I just think what's important is your foundation is, is the, you know, the older I get, the more important relationships get for me, um, sure. you know, forming deep relationships. You're maybe getting to that age as well. I don't know how old you are, but, um, you know, just that's that becomes more important than things. You know what I mean? though mm. no, really really resonates with that and yeah I'm, I'm 30 30 well say 37 i was 38 two days ago and it's exactly that I, reflecting back at this this constant chase this constant cycle that we're trying to be better and better and going hey listen let's pause and slow down and not bizarrely enough but but that's where squash mind my whole concept of squash mind is coming where it brings in a big mindfulness approach brings in slowing down trying to bring in this idea of of there's just constant distractions in the world and pulling you in all different directions. But you know what? I'm trying to make a habit of carving out time for yourself mentally to go, right, come on, let's stop. Let's breathe. Let's do some meditation. Let's, let's slow it all down a little bit. And my, I might talk about that in, in a while, but it brings me to a really interesting quote I heard a couple of years ago talking about the quote went along the lines of don't worry about finding your passion, but do what energizes you. So what energizes you out of interest? Um, you know, I, I, I love playing beach tennis. That energizes me. That's how I spend my, my weekends here in Florida is, is I go to the beach and I play, you know, maybe a total of eight, nine hours on the weekend with, wow. with good friends and, and just I'm out there because otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm really, I love I, I, my work energizes me. Um, traveling energizes me. People energize me. I mean, you know, I'm doing what I love. I really am. You know, I always thought, you know, even if I have 50 million in the bank, I'd still want to do what I do. Uh, mm-hmm. It energizes me. It's, it's, I get to choose what I, I want to do. I could do anything in, in, in that respect. Um, so, you know, I, I'm very, very fortunate that I found what I love. Um, the last year has been incredibly challenging and difficult for me, I must admit. Um, I've had some really low days as well uh, of, of, you know, I've got a history of depression as well. So, it's been tough because like everybody else, I mean, you know, you're isolated, you're not able to get out there and do what you do, what you love. So it's like almost like something was taken away from me, so to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really been a, a learning year. 2020 has really been a learning year about myself and it's not been easy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to like, you know, cry, cry over spilt milk or anything, but it's been hard for everybody, but mm-hmm. um, it was, it was a really good year to to learn myself a little bit better. Well, thank you so much for for opening up and 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 being honest with that. That that's yeah amazing to hear. And you know, from the outside, you know, looking in, you know, you don't know someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. You know, you hear that that statement, and yeah, so yeah. It, it resonates a lot. And yeah, I, I've had in personal things very low moments this year myself. But I think I'm really tapping into what energizes me more, and part of it is relationships. Part of it is slowing down. And yeah, I found it as, as actually really helped me a lot. Um, I'm super interested in your morning routine. Morning routines for me are a real interesting thing that I'm trying to cultivate the whole time, trying to suggest to my athletes and even my friends and family. Could you paint a picture of what your morning routine looks like? 
Yeah, sure. Look, I have a set wake up time every morning. It, it, it used to be five. Now it's six. Um, <laughs> Because I actually go to bed a little bit a little bit later now, so I can really be more tired, if if I can put it that way. Okay. That's something I really struggled with, Jesse. When I finished my sporting career, was I was because I'd used so much energy, and and you know when I cut down the training, and maybe you've experienced this, you struggle to sleep because you're you're not tired, you're not like fatigued like you were when you were an athlete. So Completely. when I finished my career, I really struggled to sleep, and I still do because mm -hmm. I'm just not tired enough. Um, you know, yes, I work all day and I do all these things, but physically, you know, I'm not, I'm not on a bike for three hours and, and, and running for an hour and a half and in the gym for an hour. So that was a, a big struggle for me. So um, I try and go to bed now when I'm tired, instead of go to bed at a time where I'm still lying there and I'm wide awake, you know what I mean? That, that doesn't help anything. But um, so I wake up at six, uh, I, I, I check Twitter first, I'll have coffee, I love Twitter, I go through some of the news of the day or events that have happened overnight or whatever. I really enjoy that. That's how I start my day. Um, I spend a bit of time in gratitude, thinking about things I'm grateful for. Uh, I read. I read 20 minutes. It can be something either motivational or something, um, a topic I'm reading up on or writing on, for example. Um, I exercise at least 20 minutes in, in the morning. It's usually longer. I'll go for a half an hour or, you know, yesterday was an hour because there's, I have more time at the moment because of the situation. Mm -hmm. um, and then thoughtfulness is a big one for me as well, where what is thoughtfulness? It's, it's thinking about other people that day. So maybe, you know, for example, today was my father's birthday, send him a message. Um, maybe somebody's playing a tournament today. Uh, I'll send, you know, so I just think about people in my life, what they're doing, how they are, and I'll send a text or two and I intentionally do that. And that's something that has helped me grow relationships more and be more in touch with people because, um, you know, when, you know, when you're on the go and you're traveling and, you know, you lose contact with people three, four months and, and I wanted to change that. I wanted to just stay more in touch with like, with the people that were really important to me. So that changed a lot for me. Those, those little, those mm -hmm. little things. Have you come across the book or read Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker out of interest? Um, I'm thinking if somebody sent that to me. I definitely haven't read it, but I have, I have heard of it. But I think somebody might have sent that to me. It, which it really, because... really changed my viewpoint on sleep. Uh, you know, it pretty much elevated sleep to probably the biggest health benefit. Yes, diet, exercise, relationships. You know, we talk all about that. But the way he puts across the data about why we sleep man, it's, it is crazy good and, and sleep routine and not compromising your morning. And, and so it is interesting hearing that you wake up at five o'clock and you push it back to six o'clock, but yeah, just, just a massive recommendation for me that that book I got on audiobook and physical book and, and yeah, I've gone through it twice and taken so many notes. And, but I, I, I do resonate with you about that <laughs> lack of tiredness and, you know, you just end up churning your mind the whole time. Your mind is so active and alive. So yeah, but your morning routine does sound, sound proper full on and sounds like you fit a lot into it so so let me ask you what's what's your top two three tips on on sleeping the top tip i have got from that book and and what i've tried to cultivate is a is a routine routine is the big one is is trying to do the you know eight hours right i know it sounds so simple this but the biggest thing I found that helped lately is that half an hour before I go to bed, how I do my wind down routine, you know, even simple things like I've, I've got my um, hue lamps, they dim to a certain, you know, color. 
um, all my screens go off. I, I wear, you know, these, these glasses that are protect you from blue light. So a lot of this is, is trying to get the melatonin in your system to start to increase because melatonin is the sleep bit. So once the melatonin starts to increase, you're starting to prime yourself for sleep. Um, I'm very big on journaling before I go to bed. So I journal and I meditate. So I, I do about 10 minutes journaling, 10 minutes meditating. So it feels like once I've journaled and meditated, all the thoughts for the day are just on a piece of paper. I close it and I, can't, I don't have any more control on that. So yeah, it's, it's about a half an hour process of lights going down and then more of a, a thought, getting my thoughts out on paper. I do read a little bit in bed, but the one thing I found is if I am not sleeping or say it goes for 45 minutes to an hour to actually physically get up, go to another room, even with dim lights and just try reading in another room because you've got to associate your bed with sleep. So those, those would be my top tips. And the book goes into a lot more interesting detail than that. But yeah, I found in the last probably 18 months, it's really started to work. And if I've got the luxury of which I have now, not necessarily having to set an alarm to wake up, if you can wake up naturally, once you get used to that over the course, I think he says something around the course of a month, you know, your body just starts to really wake up naturally without an alarm. So yeah, maybe an interesting read if you've got some time. It, it, it's yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've never had an alarm for, for years and I'm able to pretty much wake up within three, four minutes of my designated time. It's amazing how your, wow. your body works. So mm. um, another thing I did was uh, I, I, I haven't had a TV in my room for, yes. for 10 years, maybe 15 years. I've never, I, I don't have a TV in my room, which is a big one. That's big. Um, room is darker as well. I think it's yes. very important, the right pillows, the right, the right sheets, all these things are, are important as well. Um, I actually know. invested in, in quite an interesting sleep mask as well. Uh, maybe about six months ago, a guy called Tim Ferriss, who would love his show and on podcast. Yeah, no, he's, um, he's very big on his sleep and he recommended certain sleep masks. And yeah, the, the dark curtains, the dark room all helps. But you find that also you still are overly stimulated, even, even with all those things you put in place? I still struggle. Yeah. Um, I, my, my mind is, I, I'm constantly thinking, I, I can't switch off my mind sometimes. Uh, so, you know, I'll be thinking of things at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, ideas for the book and so on. And, you know, thank God I'm, I'm, I'm I don't have negative stress, you know, stress is stress, Yeah. but I have more, more exciting stress, positive stress of like, you know, um, you know, deadlines for books and things mm. like that, which are exciting and, mm. you know, trips I'm going to be taking and, and work projects or, or webinars or whatever. So, mm. you know, I'm very, very fortunate that, that um, the stress is not financial or something that keeps a lot of people awake at night, which I'm very, very lucky mm. for. Yeah, but like champagne problems, I suppose. But it is, it is, it is stress at the end of the day and it does accumulate. That leads me into my next little bit. What, what, what do you think around mindfulness and how, how does this fold into performances and assist training and assist athletes? Have you investigated that branch of the mind and, and where do you sit with the mindfulness aspect? Yeah, obviously mindfulness is only really something that I really only started to really properly understand maybe four or five years ago, once I started to write more about, you know, emotional intelligence and compassion and empathy and all these things about the human, um, you know, so yeah, mindfulness is something definitely almost almost it's like um, a form of appreciation mm -hmm. of being appreciative throughout your day, which is something I, I try and do of be thankful for people that make your life easier, the people at the, the post office, the supermarket, the, the person at the gate, 
you know, just, you know, acknowledging them, saying hi, saying thank you. And it's obviously something that, you know, Phil Neville spoke about on his podcast, the importance of the please and the thank yous and, and all these things. And, you know, what's very funny, Jesse, you know, you know, you know, I'm very active on, on social media and Twitter and so on. You know, what gets the most, my goal isn't to get likes, to get the most likes. That's not my goal, but you know, what gets the most likes on, on the, all the posts I do of motivation and tips and, it's it's things about saying please and thank you oh really is that right wow so they get the most attraction those get the most likes because it's like common sense of like say please say thank you acknowledge others and you know it's 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 just amazing and those are the like notice the most you know what i mean long way but it's so true and that's so important for you know kids these days and so on and so forth is that you're going to get further in life not with necessarily your your skills or your intelligence yes it's it's important or your work ethic of course mm. but just being a nice person mm. you know and, and being respectful and being you know uh, you know a, a good person so i'm just at, at an interesting phase where, where i've done a few bits of research on this the whole idea of gratitude and how gratitude lends so much more to obviously chemicals changing in your body and your mind and 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 if we can cultivate gratitude as you might have not force it but but make it a habit but then it becomes completely habitual where it's subconscious there there's a, a big body of research starting to be done around gratitude like you said please and thank you and even doing gratitude journaling in the morning and and it's, it's a thing I've, I've got my players to do for the last year or so and yeah once you tap into that gratitude part of your mind you know you're building a better character you're building a better person I'm not sure if it was you who mentioned it or, or someone, it's, you know, build the person first, build the character first and the sportsman comes later. What, what do you think on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I believe, you know, especially in coaching and what we do, coaching, teaching, leading, whatever it may be, is that, you know, it, it is, it all comes down to the person. Um, you know, what, what life lessons are you teaching them? What are they learning from you? Because they'll remember you more for, for how you made them feel, of course, and, and, and those life lessons and not necessarily the drills and the skills they did. Yes, of course, you know, they, you know, they want to become better in whatever sport they're doing, but you'll be remembered for, for those things. Just like you probably remember old coaches you used to have, you can't really remember programs as much or, or sessions, but you do remember how they made you feel. Um, you know, it's, it's no lie that players will play uh, at a higher level when um, they like you, they respect you. They want to, they want to play for you. You know, we, we hear a lot about that in, in, in football and soccer, for example, is that when the players are really attached to the coach, like like uh, the Liverpool players to Klopp, uh, back in the day, the Chelsea players to Mourinho, they they played for the they played for the coach, mm -hmm. and um, you know that's that's a, that's a very important important aspect. You know, is is those things? It's a, it comes down to people. It really comes down to people at the end of the day. Yep, couldn't agree more. Uh, there's a quote I've got on my phone, which I pull up a lot, which is which is Klopp again. Uh, so are you a Liverpool fan out of interest? Yes, I am. Yes. Since I, was, since I was five. Yes. <laughs> Why did you become a Liverpool fan out of interest? Um, well, yeah, I, I was born in, in, in Ireland and during the 80s, um, Liverpool had a lot of uh, Irish players, mm -hmm. um, Bonnie Whelan and yes. Steve Staunton and, and a few players. So I think that's what Okay. attracted me to them and, and my brother was a Manchester United fan so I thought you know just to um, you know 
be the opposite i i went for liverpool so <laughs> nice most uh, most zimbabweans of my age because of grobola obviously you remember grobola and goal like yeah, the jungle man so yeah he was uh, he was a legend back in zim but klopp's quote i heard was was that in leadership in life and coaching everything is about relationships it's such a simple quote and i think you do you get very far in life with relationships moving uh, moving on a little bit to some of your more practical coaching which I'm quite interested to hear about your work that you've done with Kevin Anderson, Svetlana Kuznetsova. Uh, for those of that, those people that don't know who they are, could you explain who those two players are? And could you tell us what it was like working with these two top, top athletes? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, Svetlana, as you can hear, is, is, is Russian. Um, I, I worked with a lot of Russian players who did reach a very high level in the world. Dinara reached, Safina reached number one in the world. Svetlana reached number two, um, ran, won two Grand Slams. Also, they were playing in a, in a time where it was really tough. Um, Serena, Serena and Venus were, were there, Capriati, Celis. Um, so, you know, she was in that era where 2008, there was a lot of great players still, Hingis, mm -hmm. uh, um, et cetera. So I worked with her. Um, I was, I enjoyed working with Eastern European athletes because they had a little bit of our mentality, like we had in South Africa, very highly disciplined. Right. Um, you get a kick up the butt if you're not doing what you should be doing. So there was no really pat on the back as much. It was like, oh, you think you're good? <laughs> think again. <laughs> you know, there was no none of that. You know, so I I was I gravitated to that, and they liked my style of training as well. It was you know it was hard. It was um, highly disciplined, uh, you know, not complimenting everything all the time and high-fiving. They don't like that. They were brought up on, they were brought up being told that they aren't good. Right. And, and that was their mentality as we're here in America, which is the complete opposite. Everybody thinks they're superstars at 10 years old here or 15, you know, which is just a false sense of false sense of security. You know, I think, you know, if you're to ask me what the right way is, I think it's in between, mm -hmm. but I think definitely here, I'm talking about Western world, United States is, you know, everything is just too sugar-coated. Everything is just too positive. And you might say, well, shouldn't it be positive? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, criticism isn't necessarily positive. You know, feedback isn't necessarily po positive if you want to get better. And I find today younger athletes struggle with criticism. They struggle with being told that, no, that's not good enough. You need to be better in this. And this is how you get better. They struggle with that. They think you're being an, an, a negative coach or a negative person, for for example. Right. So, you know, I enjoyed working with athletes who um, had a similar upbringing to me, highly disciplined, tough, um, uh, not necessarily luxury either, you know, not going to the, the nice country club down the road. You know, when I would work with the Russian athletes in Moscow, it was in in, in ten, like Spartak Moscow where there's holes in the windows it's cold mm -hmm. uh, the court hasn't been resurfaced in 25 years and that's what they that's what they practice on and that's the way it is you know it's not like you know luxury Kevin obviously reached number five in the world two years ago I, I worked with Kevin between 2014 and 2018 incredibly hard tough player um, highly disciplined he 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 went to to uh, St. Stadion's school in Johannesburg, which was about 10 minutes from where I was brought up in, in Ramberg. So we have very similar backgrounds. Uh, we had a fantastic time. We worked also with a fantastic coach called Neville Godwin, mm -hmm. who was uh, also South African. He, he was, in fact, my first player I ever worked with back in 97, 98, maybe was it? 
maybe maybe longer. And then going back to that, Neville and I played under tens and under twelves tennis together. So uh, that's the, that's the history of like thirty years later. We're still in 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 good contact. In fact, uh, the last two December's bar this one. Obviously, we've been in Thailand working with a, a Korean player, uh, Neville and I. So that's a thirty. Five-year-old relationship. Brilliant. That started when we were ten years old. Uh, so yeah, we worked with Kevin. I, I feel we were incredibly successful getting him to the top five in the world, two Grand Slam finals, mm. uh, massive win over Roger Federer in the quarterfinals of right. Wimbledon. Yep. And um, you know, very proud that that obviously he comes from South Africa and he was able to do so well. I think he's struggling a little bit now with injuries. I hear. Mm. Um, obviously, last year has been difficult to tell where anybody is because. Yeah. Uh, of, of the pandemic and there's not much tournaments and, and whatever, but uh, you know, Kevin lives about 20 minutes from me mm -hmm. um, down here in Delray beach. So, yeah. I'd just like to dig a little bit deeper what you said about the Russian players. And I suppose Kevin comes into this as well. It, it is fascinating to hear this, this idea. And so how do you go about trying to cultivate that? You know, we, we hear the self-determination theory and athlete being their own leader. How do you foster this mindset in athletes where they have the coach's eye, so to speak? How, how would you go about doing that if, if you were to be given an athlete and you, you feel they a little bit pampered or coming from background where they don't have this? Is there any tips you could give on that? You know, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult to change somebody. Um, you know, they're everybody, you know, you're a product of your environment, you're a product of your upbringing, you're a product of your home. Mm -hmm. So if you've been pampered at home and your parents have always run to your defense, then, you know, that's something that you can't, it's very difficult to change in a, in a, in a young athlete because their roots are, are, are their parents and their family and so on and so forth. So, you know, I put a tweet out yesterday. I think it was, um, you know, just like respect and discipline start in the home. So does entitlement. Mm. and you know that's where it begins you know you have entitled kids well that started in the home that didn't start somewhere else mm -hmm. is that they were allowed to do those things mm. and they were allowed to get away with those things and now they come to you and you're trying to like discipline them and change them and you know it's as, as you know it's very difficult to do however you know my first book seven keys to being a great coach it was the very first chapter i wrote was set your standards mm -hmm. right what are your, you know, if you, for another word, rules of how things operate. So just like you were brought up in a house that had rules, mm -hmm. you know, you wouldn't speak to your mother a certain way and you wouldn't do this. And when, you know, so is, so it's the same for me when I coach or I work with athletes is that here are the standards of how we work. Mm. You know, if you're late, no problem. Just send a message beforehand saying I'm running 10 minutes late because of traffic. No problem. Mm -hmm. All right. If it's happening three, four, five times, it is a problem. Um, the way we speak to each other, the way we our dress code, um, you know, we all help put together, uh, you know, help with the cones, help with all these things. So those are my standards that I have. Mm -hmm. um, one of the standards that I have is regards parents of where they are right. and where they come into the picture. And, and parents are very important in your program because first of all, they pay your bills. Mm -hmm. The kids don't. <laughs> so when you're working with a kid, you're working with a family. So communication as a coach is very important to them, but they need to know, uh, or, or for, should I say from my standards, I need to let them know where they are in this relationship, mm -hmm. what your role is. Your role is not to coach. Your role is not to, uh, you know, berate the kid if, if, okay, yes, if they've been badly, uh, uh, if there's been poor behavior, yes, that's you, the parent that, you know, needs to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but you know, for me as well, I don't, the parents I work with, um, you know, they need to behave as well at tournaments. So for example, a year ago, you know, great kid, unfortunately, the parents just did not, didn't know how to behave at tournaments. You know, they'd argue with, with other parents. Wow. They're, they're calling, they're making line calls. They're calling the, the umpire a cheat. And I, I mentioned to her, I said, I'm, I'm sorry, but we can't go further in this relationship. And the kid was a lovely kid, unfortunately. I mean, I, I, and again, they are the ones that suffer. Yeah. Uh, but the parents just didn't know how to behave at, at tournaments and stuff. And then, you know, that's linked to my name. That's like, oh, they, they work with Alistair and, and I don't want to be associated with that. How did the and, parents and take it? No, I can't discipline a parent, yeah. but I can make the choice that we're not going to work together anymore because that's part of my reputation. Of course. And, and did, did, was there a discussion of the parent trying to address their behavioral problems or, or was well, it? I'd, 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 I'd had a, a prior discussion. So let's just say they got a chance, mm -hmm. but they knew beforehand of, you know, behaviors and so on that the kid, it's the kid's journey. Okay. You, you, you take them to the tournament. Mm -hmm. I also recommend that they sit further away from the court. They're not sitting at the, at the window, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is ridiculous. You know, the kid can't breathe. <laughs> and uh and they support and you know i also like the parents that i work with to you know especially if it's junior players to support and and applaud the opponent if they they if it was a good rally and your kid lost the rally mm -hmm. you applaud the, the you applaud the rally sure you know so i want to see those things you know so you almost have to educate parents on how to behave mm -hmm. because this should be an environment that we create that is you love to go to a tournament because it's a nice environment not you know everybody's like against each other yes you're competitors i get it but com competition should just happen between two players when they walk on the court or doubles four players if you if you wish that's where the competition is outside mm -hmm. is support and making the environment as pleasurable as possible for everybody win or lose so those are some of the standards i try and educate parents parents with mm -hmm. and getting back to your point there yes i'd had that discussion with her it was it was the mother more and, uh, and, and, and she violated again. Uh, two, three weeks later, uh, I heard that, you know, she was um, calling one of the, the kids' opponents a cheat at the tournament. And I said, oh, that's it. Can't, can't continue. No, sounds, no. sounds exactly like the right Even thing. Even if the kid was a cheat, it's still, it's just not a way to behave. Mm. It, it reminds me a lot what you're saying there, some of the words. Uh, I, 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 I think you would have come across it. The book Legacy, uh, talking about the All Blacks. Yeah. Um, you know, it's all about that culture. And, you know, you got uh, Dan Carter cleaning the, the 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 boot room and the cleaning the boots and stuff like that. And, you know, even Dan Carter, arguably one of the greatest fly-offs of all time, he is not above his station. And yeah, I think that that's a lot what I got from your books and your writing. And, and when you post stuff on Twitter, I love how you do set the benchmark of culture, almost to the point of, well, not to the point of your detriment because you've got a reputation to uphold, but when I'm doing some coach education, that's what young coaches really find hard. And I think I was like that. I was going, oh, you almost, you let the parents, you know, watch the kid training. You have the parents shouting over the back of the squash court saying, get your racket up. And, you know, yeah, I got to a point probably in my mid twenties where again, I, I got confident enough in what I was doing that that was unacceptable. But yeah, telling a 19, 20 year old coach to do that, that that's, that's quite a, quite a tough gig. Sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. But you know, when you, lay those foundations down you're you know and and you stick to them mm -hmm. you know i think i think a lot of young coaches or coaches they're they're afraid to lose a client yes which i get but what would you rather have would you rather have a paying client that just is gives you a lot of stress um 
you know, is a blemish on your reputation because of the way they behave. And then you see other parents see that or other people see that, that that's what you accept is that, you know, the parent can be coaching the kid, like you said, get your racket up, um, all, the, all this stuff. And that's what you endorse. Mm -hmm. So then everybody else thinks, okay, well, that's what, what, that's what he endorses or she endorses. Yeah. And for me, yes, I, I lost some clients, but I was able to gain the right clients of who aligned with my values and it made life so much more enjoyable. Mm. And, you know, I think the fear is that people think, oh, I'm going to lose a client I'm going to lose income and I completely get it. <laughs> You've got bills to pay. But once you set those standards and you're firm with them, mm -hmm. um, you start to attract the right clients. And, and for me, that's why obviously, you know, seven keys to being a great coach. The very first chapter was set your standards because it will, will make life very, very easy, mm -hmm. uh, uh, very easy. It'll make life easier for yourself. Brilliant advice. And, and yeah, hearing you say that just reinforced it. And, and this maybe links into you working possibly with David Palmer. You know, David Palmer was known as one of the toughest competitors on the squash tour, uh, really high standards. He went into a coaching career. I, I believe he was quite close to you at one point uh, physically in, in Florida. And he had a great academy set up Miguel Rodriguez, Stephen Coppinger, and, and a bunch of other names coming through. So how was it entering that field with someone like David Palmer? His nickname was the Marine, as you're probably aware on the tour. It must have been a joy for you walking into an environment like that with his players yeah david's a guy i have so much respect for obviously i remember him as a player so when i was living back in amsterdam in the early 2000s i, I had the pleasure of watching him compete sometimes um just a beast uh, so much respect for him he's still super fit today um fantastic coach um a great demeanor uh, a very a very deep thinker so you know he's not not someone that's just talking all the time <laughs> he's he really thinks about what he's going to say so i think he's a fantastic coach i've encouraged him to write a book i think you know being a former world champion and number one in the world and now coaching i think he's definitely uh, i definitely love to read his book uh obviously his work ethic working with sean moxham who's one of the best coaches in the world of course uh they had an incredible partnership yep uh so you know i was very very honored one, when David said, you know, could you come speak to our players and work with our players? And, you know, I didn't have to hesitate about, about answering that. I, I, you know, got in the car and drove to, to Orlando nice. um, where he was at that, that, that time. And, um, you know, I've learned a lot from David. And, and actually, funny enough, I think just came up on my timeline exactly a year ago last year. Uh, he was down here with the Cornell players for a training camp in, in Boca Raton. And I spoke with, with the students. So, you know, we still, we still keep in touch and brilliant. he's just an incredible guy. Mm. And working with his athletes, I, I, do you remember Miguel Rodriguez, Stephen Coppinger? Yeah, that, that must have been a fun process as well. Yeah, um, yeah, they would sometimes actually come over to Sarasota, uh, okay. where I used to live, and, and you know, Miguel and, and a, a lot of the players and, and, you know, David would come as well and we'd do a training camp for a week. And uh, that's when I think Miguel got to top five in the world. He was just a beast back back then, maybe 20, I don't know, 13, 14. I don't know when it, when he was at that, that level. Um, a joy to work with, a, a super guy, obviously, uh, Cops, Stephen mm -hmm. Coppinger. Um, who else was in that group? Um, Donna, um, yeah, the Australian. Yeah, the lefty. Yep, yep. She was... Donna Lobhan, I think it is now. Yeah, no, yeah. She's um, her and Greg Loban are working with Nick right. Mack in Sheffield. So yeah, they they doing some good stuff with with Nick and you know Nick, three time world champion and uh, yeah, yeah Nick, he's phenomenal as well. I had him on the podcast and uh, just what a what a quality guy. And I I remember him playing 
and watching him warm up. And, you know, those are the things I always used to watch in athletes. And Nick was just um, a complete professional. Mm, totally. So when I uh, reached out to you and very kindly gave me some of your time, uh, a few of my athletes were just over the moon. They were proper, like, I cannot believe you're going to be speaking to him. So um, I've got a couple of really interesting questions from, from juniors, you know, between 13 and 17 year olds. And I think I shared a few of them with you. And again, really insightful questions for, for people so young. So Emily asked, um, what was your journey like? Not necessarily being the best junior, then becoming a professional and going on to compete compete in the world championships. I think she's struggling that she's not at the best at her age at the moment, but wants to be a pro. What advice would you give to someone like Emily on that? You know, just, just take care of, of today. Do, do your best today. I don't know. It sounds very cliche, but don't worry about, you know, what's going to happen in the future because nobody, nobody knows. I didn't think I'd, you know, my, my dream and my vision was to, to be a professional athlete and be, you know, the world championships and, but little did I know at 12, 13, if that was going to work out. So, you know, just keep putting in the hard work. Um, you know, you know, I was, I wasn't the best junior either. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it really, you know, even in school, I didn't make the, the, the 800 or 400 meter uh, team. And, you know, I was a decent athlete, but I wasn't that good to, to be even the top three in my school, wow. never mind my club or my, or my province. And, I was one of the few guys that went on to, to compete for South Africa. So mm. I developed a little bit later. Mm -hmm. And that's my advice to her is, is believe in yourself, keep working hard, keep mm -hmm. learning, see uh, each match as a great challenge of, of your ability, uh, learn from your wins and your losses. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, just keep progressing like that. Enjoy the journey. You know, don't worry about where you're going to be and what's going to happen. You know, that's an uncontrol that's an uncontrollable, uh, mm -hmm. Emily. It's, you know, just really enjoy the game. Enjoy uh, competing. Enjoy your coaches. Enjoy the environment because you're learning a lot more in these things than you realize. Later on, you'll realize what you're really, you know, looking back. But, mm -hmm. you know, just believe in yourself. Every single world champion or professional athlete was where you were, where they had doubt. Like, you know, we all had doubt, like there's no guarantee you're going to make it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but keep working hard. I think with, you know, with, with um, the coach you have and, and the environment, you're, you're going to go very far. That, that for me really resonates as well, because you don't necessarily think of, think of the skills you learn when you're not the best, you know, sometimes when you're the best and it comes so easy, if you're winning under 12, under 14, under 16 titles, the whole way, you know, when you get into the big world, you might not have honed those skills of resilience or playing from behind or having to bounce back. And that, that's some of the advice I try to give a lot is going, Hey, you don't need to be the best junior, but if you do your processes, if you stick to your habits and you accumulate those habits over years, Nick Matthew wasn't the best junior until he was 17, 18. He peaked. That's right. And, you know, he was continually on the back foot. Look, he was great. He was still like top five in the country, but he then flourished later on. So for me, I, I think that's a real good one. You know, so, you know, I was listening to a podcast. I was actually on a podcast about a month ago of um, it's a tennis podcast, Soto Academy. It's called Control the Controllables. Mm -hmm. And um, the episode after me, they had Xavier Melisse, who was mm -hmm. a, a Belgian professional. And in fact, I'm uh, I'm great friends with, with Xavier and I worked with him for the last two years of his career. Xavier reached number 20 in the world and number 19 in the world. Uh, he beat uh, Roger Federer. He's actually one of the few players that's beaten Federer, Novak, Nadal and Murray. So there's not many that can wow. have that in their resume where they've beaten the top four, mm -hmm. but Xavier did. So Xavier was talking about, it was very interesting. Xavier was talking about that he was, he was the best junior. I mean, he, 
he beat Roger 6-1, 6-1 when, when there were 16, 15, 16. He killed Roger. Wow. And in fact, it was easy for him against everybody. He was that good. He was that good. Hmm. And he obviously was tipped to be a future world number one Grand Slam champion. And he didn't fulfill that. Hmm. And, you know, he talks honestly and open about, you know, the expectations that they had on him and, and, you know, top 20 was not good enough for a guy that should be number one. And he was lazy and he's this and he's that. And, you know, that created a lot of pressure for him. But he said, if I could go back to when I was a junior, I wish I'd lost more, not purposefully, but I I wish I was worse Mm -hmm. because I would, because I would have learned how to lose. He said, when I got to pro rank, I didn't know how to lose and, and it hurt me because I would uh, in a way quit some matches tank because I didn't want to lose against this person. I'd rather just show that I'm not trying and you can beat me. <laughs> and, you know, you see that with another player that I worked with Bernard Tomic, the Australian, mm-hmm. where he was so good as a junior, ridiculously good as a junior that 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 hurt him later on in his career is that he didn't know how to lose. <laughs> and when he felt he was going to lose against somebody, he didn't try anymore. Cause he didn't want to, it didn't want to show that I'm actually losing to this person. Mm. So, so it's important to, to learn how to lose and win as a junior. Don't think, you know, uh, I, I've seen more good juniors, great juniors who just didn't lose end up either not making it yep. or, or, or not fulfilling their potential because they just didn't know how to lose. Really powerful advice. And, and thanks for sharing that story. It's great hearing those athletes that have played at the very top of junior and like Xavier Melis, not quite transferring. Oh, well, look, top 20 in the world is nothing to be sniffed at. But yeah, it tipped to be probably one of the greatest, but didn't quite get there. So um, Laura's got a couple of questions. Our great, great little athlete, Laura here. She asked, what's the one piece of advice you were given that you have stuck to religiously that has never let you down? That's quite deep for a 14 year old girl, by the way, isn't it? That's very deep. Yeah, I think. yeah, that's a good question, Laura. I would say it's being true to yourself that only you know if you've if you've given your best. I knew that. Um, I never wanted to have a regret about not trying hard enough. I never wanted to finish my career going. You know what? If I if I trained harder, or if I'd eaten better, or if I'd done this or that, I never wanted any of those regrets. So I made sure that I did everything I had to do mm-hmm. and more. So it would be being true to myself is that, you know, you could, you might be able to fool your coach. You might be able to fool your parents that you tried hard or whatever, and, but only, you know, mm-hmm. only, you know, and that for me was important that I, I never wanted to lie to myself. You know, um, I would never give up a race. I would never not try. I mean, I remember, I remember some races where I was expected to win and I ended up like, like 98th or 112th. And I would be devastated, embarrassed. But my question would always be, did you, did you try your best? And it would be yes, even though I just, it just didn't work that day. And, and I think that's important. Be true to yourself. Mm, great. And, and she goes on to ask, um, which might be linked here, what drives you to continue when you've lost motivation and can't see progress as quickly as you would have liked to? Because I can speak on her behalf. She, she does put in the work. She's very dedicated and honing her craft. But obviously, sometimes as a junior, you don't see that 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 rise. You know, you're almost plateauing and even going down. So, what advice would you give that 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 drives that motivation? Obviously, it's important to have a vision um, to know you know where you want to be one day. So, never lose never lose uh, that vision. Be it standing on top of a podium, 
or at the world open or, you know, whatever it may be, or maybe you visualize yourself in the top 10 in the world, whatever it may be a hundred. Um, always keep that. That's your, that's your, that's your purpose. That's your vision. That's your out there goal that should keep that, that keeps you inspired. Yes. On a day-to-day basis, it's very hard sometimes to stay motivated, to get up and feel like going to training, especially if it's cold outside, you're like, it's, you know, all this type of things. So, um, understand that it's it's part of the process is that you're not always going to feel great you're not always going to feel like it um and and that's part of it you know but your your greater vision your greater goal uh to why you do it should be it should be a, a a big enough driving force and and you know see the days where you're not feeling great is that you're going to play in tournaments where there's going to be days you're not going to feel great mm-hmm. how do you get through that and I, I was chatting on a podcast yesterday about this exact thing is the difference between the good and the great is that the great can can still pitch up when they're not feeling well and they're not feeling great and they know they're not playing great, but they somehow get through. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference of that next step up is how can you deal when you're not firing in all cylinders or you're not feeling great? Can you get through today? That's the question. Mm. Yeah, a, a quote that I use quite a lot is, is excellence is just an accumulation of habits. You know, I, I quite like it. You break it down into these habits and you stack the habits together for a week, a month, a year, two years, five years. And, you know, it's no surprise. And you've worked with some of the top athletes in the world. It, it sounds like they've just accumulated these really healthy habits and behaviors day in, day out. And it's in, in simple terms, it, it's, I don't think it's genius. And what I've researched around the subject, it's not like they've got this magic bullet or this magic wand. It's an accumulation of habits. Where, where do you stay, uh, stand on, on that habit forming and, and really getting that into your day-to-day process? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, absolutely. You're right. There is, is excellence comes down to your, your daily habits. It's, what, it's not what you do. Sometimes it's what you do all the time. Mm-hmm. So I have this, I have this, this saying, you know, the average do it sometimes, the good do it most of the time, the great do it all of the time. Mm-hmm. And again, it was, you know, talking about Phil Neville there, uh, you know, because it's still fresh in my mind. That's, that's how he explained high performance mm-hmm. is that high performance is a very thrown around term. You know, everything's high performance today. And he, and he said, you know, high performance is, comes down to your habits. It's what you're doing all the time. It's what you're doing all the time, not just sometimes or when you feel like it. He says, it's what you're doing when you don't feel like it. Are you doing those same things you need to do? Mm-hmm. You know, does Ronaldo feel like going out after practice, after all his teammates are back in, back in the, you know, the nice warm locker room? Do, do you feel like going out and working on your free kicks in the rain? <laughs> well, that's, that's excellence happening when you don't see it. So, you know, you see this guy on TV and you think, man, that's so talented and brilliant and, but you don't see what he's doing, uh, you know, or, you know, after practice and he goes home and he goes into his cryotherapy tank and he does his recovery and he, he hires his own chef. And yes, he's very, he's very uh, wealthy. He can do those things, but it's the mindset. He doesn't have to do that. He's already a multimillionaire and has everything, but he doesn't have to do that, but he still does. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's excellence. That's high performance right there. You know, that's an example of the mindset because he doesn't have to do it. Mm-hmm. He's got enough <laughs> and he's, he's Ronaldo, but that just shows you like the mindset of a, of, of a, of a, a champion. Mm. Yeah, totally. And it sounds like that mindset has been cultivated, you know, environment, maybe a bit of genes, but, but it's been, been there from a very young age by the, by the sound of it. And, you know, we've seen documentaries on Ronaldo and, you know, eight, nine, 10 years, just continually at it, his parents sacrificing, you know, where they lived. And you, you, I think people are aware of the story of Messi moving over from Argentina to Barcelona, his parents sacrificing a lot, but he's just cultivated that, that champion mindset massively. 
So final question from uh, one of the listeners, Phil, he's a good friend of mine, a coach. He's got a good one about um, what top tips would you have for getting pupils to be mentally tough in the moments of performance? So he's really interested in that a moment when, when it's at the crunch phase and maybe your self-talk and, and how can, how can you cultivate mental toughness and performance? Do you think? Well, it just reminds me of that saying, I think it was from Jocko Willink, maybe, um, you know, you don't, it's a Navy SEAL uh, quote and I don't exactly remember how it goes right now, but you basically, you don't rise to, to your level uh, you, you sink to, to the habits that you've developed in practice. So you don't become mentally stronger in a match. Mm -hmm. You don't, you know, those things are, are the learned things that you have in practice in your daily lifestyle. I always say that competitive mental toughness originates from foundational mental toughness. And I think you've read champion minded, you mentioned there where it's your daily discipline in your life that carries over to other things. You know, you just can't all of a sudden be disciplined here and you're not really disciplined there. Yes, there's things, some things you like, some things you don't like, maybe some things you do better than, than others. But, you know, it, it really comes down to the daily discipline you have in yourself and you're eating, especially if you're an athlete, your sleeping habits, your nutrition, your, um, your choices you make, all, all these things, your recovery, the things you do at home. The, you know, that, that's, that's really what it all comes down to, you know, is, is, is those things. Um, I don't know if I answered that question. What, what was the question again? Well, yeah, it was, it was I think you did. It, it was the idea of, of uh, being- the mental toughness, sorry, mental yeah. Mental toughness in the moments of performance. Yeah, yeah, you know, mental, mental toughness is, you know, you ask 50 people what mental toughness is, you'll get 50 different answers. To me, mental toughness is basically doing the things that, are, that, that, that you don't feel like doing. Mm -hmm. It's the things that are difficult. Um, that, you know, and that's where excellence lies is doing the things that other people don't really want to do or don't feel like doing, mm -hmm. you know, do you feel like staying afterwards and, and working on a particular stroke for an extra 45 minutes? Do you feel like um, going out for a run this afternoon in the rain and the cold or whatever? Maybe not. No, you'd rather stay inside and watch TV and whatever, but it comes down to the choices you make. It comes down to, you know, how badly do you want it? And that's what, for me, it was very, very simple. I had clarity at a very young age is that I wanted it badly. I really wanted it badly. And I was willing to do whatever it took. Mm. I don't care what the weather's like. I don't care what the situation is. I will do it. I don't, I don't care what time of the day it is. I remember training mornings at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning before school. Wow. Nobody asked me to do that. I mean, I was doing it. And, and, you know, not everybody is like me. I completely get that. But um, I had a choice. Mm. I could have slept in. Mm -hmm. I was a good athlete, but I, I had a choice that I just didn't want to be good. I wanted to be the next level and the next level level up. So, yeah, um, mental toughness, again, you, you can't give somebody mental toughness. Uh, going to a boot camp or training camp or, or that doesn't make you mentally tough. Men mentally tough, mental toughness is a decision of how you're going to be, how you're going to think. Mental toughness is your ability to get over failure quickly. Your mental toughness is your ability to, to forget the last point. Mm -hmm. Mental toughness is your ability to uh, continue to play hard when, you, when you're not playing well. That's mental toughness. Mental mm -hmm. toughness is not how, how hard you can push or how long you can train. That's physical toughness. That's, you know, but mental toughness is decisions of emotions, decisions of, of um, again, for me, for an athlete, it's when you're not performing well, can you still compete? that's the that's the big one mm. a lot of what you say there brings me to um atomic habits by james clear again a great book if if, you, if people haven't read it one of his quotes i'll probably get a bit wrong but he says the 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 final mile 
on a road is sometimes the um the, the less cluttered mile it's the person who's willing to go to that furthest mile there's not many people on that road at that point and and you know emily's thing about being a junior and maybe not succeeding as a junior and transferring to a pro uh, i love that quote about you know what if you're willing to go to that final mile it's not going to be that cluttered there's not going to be many people who are going to yeah. go to that point and, and i love that so um That's listen um, alistair in closing I'm, I'm conscious your time has been absolutely brilliant i've got a couple more little questions we can go through but again I, this has been such an illuminating conversation uh, you've alluded to it, but I was going to ask, what's what's next for you? Your next project's coming up. You're writing your fifth book. Can you share what the title is yet, or, or is that not possible? Uh, not the title yet. Uh, yeah. The book is on leadership. It's it's. Um, I'm pretty excited about this one because it's especially for coaches, people in the sports industry. You don't have to be in the sports industry, but it's about learning how to lead, not coach. There's a difference between coaching and leading. Uh, being, but how to lead, how to manage. And I think this is an area that coaches can do better in is how to lead people, how to manage people better, how to have conversations, tough conversations. And there's a lot of um, sports uh, related things to sport. And, and, and you'll like some stuff in there about Liverpool and how Klopp has dealt with leadership and how Alex Ferguson has and, you know, all these big sports teams and that how, how coaches have led their players. So I'm really excited about that one. Hopefully, hopefully April uh, it would be nice to get that out. Um, obviously, like the rest of the world, I'm not able to travel much. So I'm just doing a lot of things at home like this, webinars, podcasts, mm -hmm. um, uh, consulting. Nice. I have a mentorship program as well. So I have some people that I mentor as well. So that's basically what's, what's keeping me busy. Cool. I'll, I'll put all these in the show notes as well and, and signpost to your books and, and your social media channels. And I always like to ask this question, what points of reference can you point to players, podcasts, books, films, talks, any ones that come to mind that have been quite seminal for you? Obviously, your books are, are right at the top of my list. I signpost people to a lot of your stuff, but anything that you've borrowed from other experts and other fields that you can signpost players towards? Um, really, I mean, it, I, I read a lot. Um, on, on subjects that I'm interested in right now. It's leadership, it's team culture and so on. So, you know, I'll read about that. I like to watch uh, YouTube of like, just um, not, not anything's related to, to, you know, my, my career, but um, aviation and all these things, you know, just a lot of different things. Cool. Uh, I follow, I make sure I only follow positive, interesting people on social media. I get rid of negativity very quickly and and that's something I encourage young people is just to delete mm. negative people, delete negative uh, social media pages, Instagram, all that stuff. Also, you know, com stop comparing yourself to other people's hi highlights reel on their Instagram. And, you know, you're thinking to yourself, what's wrong with me? Why am I not there? Or why don't I have that? And, you know, it's all just a highlight reel, mm -hmm. you know, just, just, you know, uh, follow positive things, positive people, pages, and it makes, it makes a big difference in your life. Really, it does. Get around good people. That's, that's probably my best advice. Yeah, I lo love that. And, and it sounds like you're quite a curious guy. It sounds like you, your, your brain is going in different directions. And I, I think that's... I can't sleep. <laughs> What's that? That's why I have trouble sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Matthew, Matthew Walker will be going, what are you doing, dude? Just like settle down. But I think that's a, that's a great mindset to cultivate is curiosity. Um, it's something I, I'm curious in a lot of things. And I think my players are because I try to pass it on to them. Um, and is there any final messages you'd like to give? Any tips for athletes that you find robust and sustainable? I know we've covered some amazing ground here. Um, any final thoughts from yourself? 
I think we covered quite a lot there, but I think I'll maybe finish with my favorite quote is, is excellence is an attitude. And, you know, it, it comes down to your attitude on a daily basis of, of you get to choose that regardless of your circumstances, but excellence really is an attitude. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've even got a shirt that I wear sometimes that says excellence is, is an attitude, but that's really what it comes down to. Um, your attitude will get you way further in life than, than, than anything else. Mm-hmm. So bring a good attitude. You know, it's like, um, I'll give you a very simple example. I, I live in a, a gated community here in Florida and, and there's one particular gate um, guard. Um, she's young. She must be 25, 26. Always smiles, always waves, always, um, you know, just, just those simple things. Just a great personality, great attitude. Not all of them have that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, someone like that, I will stop and I will, you know, I got her a Christmas gift or I want to know what she's doing. I'll help her with certain things or, you know, help her in her career moving forward. It's because she's just got a good attitude and, and you know, that, that, that's attractive, you know, that's a good energy. And that's what I'm saying is that, you know, you could be anybody sitting in that guardhouse. It's maybe not where you want to be right now, but she's going to go places because of her attitude. I know that. And, and that's just a, that's just a simple example of you might not be where you want to be right now, but if you want to get out of there or you want to go, you know, to wherever you want to be, change your attitude. Mm-hmm. Because then people do want to help you. They do want to, they're interested in you. You know, like I am in her with regards to her career and helping her move forward. And she's, she's, you know, I could easily just drive past there, you know, mm-hmm. so it's just an example. Amazing. Sound advice. Really, really good. Um, and where can people find you? I know you're on social and, and um, websites. Do you want to just give, give a bit of a shout out to your channels where people can follow you and contact sure. you if they want to? Yeah, well, Twitter is my favorite one, uh, at Alistair McCall. Um, Instagram, Be Champion Minded. Uh, Facebook, Alistair McCall page. Obviously, my podcast, Champion Minded, is available on various forms. Um, YouTube, iTunes, AlistairMcCall.com, my website, it's, it's on there as well. And then, obviously, all books are available on, on Amazon. So, yeah. Amazing. Alistair, listen, appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man. You're in demand. Um, I reached out to you out the blue and, and you were very gracious. And again, I'm expressing a lot of gratitude to you for this. Uh, I'm on the beginning journey of my podcast series and, and to have a guest on like you this early on has been great. I hope at some point in the future, we could loop back around and have a little chat in the future and massive luck with your book. I, for one, I'm going to be getting it as soon as it comes out. So I'll be watching where that goes. And yeah, hopefully we might even do a face-to-face at some point in the future. Sounds good, Jesse. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you and, and obviously best of luck with everything and, and all your, your players as well. A big, a big shout out to them and, and keep doing great things. Good luck with the podcast. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks. Presence. Process. Persistence. The essence of Squash Mind.